الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد أشرف الخلق وسيد المرسلين وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين اللهم لا سهل إلا ما جعلته سهلا وأنت تجعل الحزن إذا شئت سهلا شهلا رب صحلي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحل العقدة من لسان يفقه قولي أما بعد session two of our intensive فقه 101 intro to Islamic law uh, we're going to start it off with some questions there was a direct question that Someone wanted to ask me, one of the brothers, uh, is he here? Uh, yes, what was the question you wanted to ask? Uh, okay, yeah, I see it. All right, so we're looking at page six. The question is um, uh, about a certain selection on page six. It says that Imam Zuhri mentions, right? So if he's speaking to uh, an opinion, a scholarly opinion that says if the dog was to... Um, uh, lick from a vessel that belongs to one of you and you have no other vessel to make wudu' from, um, then in this case, you should make wudu' from it. And one of the other scholars, um, Sufyan al-Thawri, he said, this is exactly what fiqh is. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, um, فَلَمْ تَجِدُوا مَاءً فَتَيَمَّمُوا صَعِيدًا طَيِّبًا Right, so he says here, وَهَذَا مَا So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, if you do not find water, then seek the dirt from the ground by which you make tayammum. So we have water, it's contaminated, but we still have water. So should we go to tayammum or not? He's presenting this as an example of how some of the past generations applied fiqh. It shows that there's more to this than what meets the eye. Things are not black and white. Now, of course, this is not a standard opinion that you'll find across the board. In fact, if you were to come to me and ask me this question, I would tell you uh, that I would tell you that there is um, uh, there's two different situations you'd be in when you're seeking tayammum. One situation is in an area where you would commonly find water. And another situation is where you do not commonly find water. If you're in an area where you do not commonly find water, then the shari dispensation for you in this situation, because the water you have is contaminated, it's good as non-existent. So, لم تجد ماءً the Shafi'i scholar would understand it as ma'an salihal tuhr water that is viable for purification and that would mean that it needs to be pure water the dog licked from it now it's made impure so th this is this pri this shows you that there's going to be multiple angle 
angles that you could look at the same source text with. So here, Imam Sufyan al-Thawri said, this is exactly what fiqh is. Why? Because Allah said, if you do not find water, meaning that if water is non-existent, but if you find water, even if contaminated, it's still going to be better than making tayammum. That's what he's trying to tell you here. The other side is telling you what? No. If it's contaminated, it's good as non-existent. So that's how I understand the verse. Right? So, so this is, this is, this is uh, how I would understand this selection. I'm not sure what the other madahib would say, if any of them would be of the same opinion of Imam Zuhri on this issue. But it's mentioned as uh, an example of how fiqh would be uh, applied uh, in something that's more than meets the eye. Right? Does that answer your question? Okay. So here's, here's a question. Um, the first, I have a question here that says, what is the Quranic reference of saying understanding Islam is supposed to understand the Quran and Sunnah? Um, okay, I don't fully understand what's being asked here. Uh, can you ask directly? Yes. Ikhmasalam. Yes. Of course. Yes. Um, the basis from the Quran is um, If you really love Allah and want to follow Allah, love me and Allah will love you. You need to follow me. Follow me and Allah will love you. This is one, under, one basis. The other basis is that the Quran came down, and of course this is by consensus and agreement, came down addressing a context. This context was the life of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and um, uh, in order for me to understand the verses, I need to understand the context in which they've been revealed. So, meaning that if I don't understand the Sunnah, I will not understand the the point of reference for the verses because they came down addressing real life situations. There are other verses in the Quran that command us and enjoin upon us to follow the sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu um, uh, alaihi wasallam and then uh, the, among these verses is qul uh, wa rasul obey allah and obey his messenger obeying his messenger means obeying his words his actions that's what's present in his sunnah and if this verse was if, if I say the sunnah is not reliable, that means I'm saying this verse of the Qur'an is not actionable. I, meaning I cannot, okay, obey the messenger. Okay, well, I can't trust the sunnah. Well, how am I supposed to apply this verse? I can't apply it, right? This is another verse that's in here. And then in another verse, third verse, وَلَوْ رَدُّوهُ إِلَى الرَّسُولِ وَإِلَىٰ أُولِي الْأَمْرِ مِنْهُمْ لَعَلِمَهُ الَّذِينَ يَسْتَنْبِطُونَهُ مِنْهُمْ If they had brought this matter back to the Prophet and to those of knowledge among them, they would have known the response to it or the answer to it. This is a direct call from the Qur'an to bring matters back to the Prophet and see how he explains them. Right? And um, in another verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, he speaks of the example of the Prophet as being a form of guidance. He says, لَقَدْ كَانَ لَكُمْ فِي رَسُولِ اللَّهِ أُسْوَةٌ حَسَنًا For the, you and the Prophet ﷺ is a good example. 
How is this example any good if it's not actionable and the guidance of it is lost? Right? In another verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَمَا يَنْطِقُ عَنِ الْهَوَى إِنْ هُوَ إِلَّا وَحْيٌ يُوحَى Right? He never speaks of his own women as a cord. It is all revelation that is revealed. So here, anything Muhammad said is a form of revelation. And if I say that the sunnah is lost, I'm saying revelation is lost. This is another evidence that, uh, to following the sunnah. Zakhla khair for your question. Can you please define the terms tazkiyah and ihsan? Yes, uh, tazkiyah means purification of the soul. Right? It means to rid it of toxicity, to build beautiful things within it. Right? That's tazkiyah. Ihsan, excellence, benevolence, striving for um, the, the best path. Right? So striving for human perfection. Right? That's what ihsan is. It is feeling Allah watching over you. It is feeling as though you could see Allah in every decision you make, in every function you have. Right? Um, now, here's another question. Uh, are there any recommendations you would have for one learning fiqh who gets waswasa often? Um, we'll get to these recommendations perhaps in the end of, in the end of uh, our session today. Uh, so we'll leave that one for later, inshallah. You could keep the questions coming through uh, to the Slido, and I'll answer them as we see fit here now. Now let's get through some slides. Now, part of this introduction to Islamic law is in me understanding where, Islam, where the legal system in the Islamic tradition fits in relation to everything else, right? The, and in order to understand this, I need to understand three things. What need is there for messengers? Why, are, why, why do we need messengers as human beings? What need is there for legislation? Why do we need laws to govern us as human beings? Right? Why do I need messengers? Why do I need legislation? This is slide 17. And the third question is, how does Islamic law or divine law compare to man-made law? Right? Right. So, al-haja ila al-rusul, ila ba'that al-rusul, al-haja ila tashri'ah. These are the three things that is mentioned here. The need for revelation. The need for revelation is clear to us in that the mind is not enough to rely on to attain guidance. No, 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 no. The mind is this um, incredible creation of Allah that gives us the process, the the ability and the capacity to analyze things, critically think. It's an incredible creation of Allah. But this mind has limitations. This mind could um, identify guidance, but in order for it to identify it, it needs to be presented to it, right? So in our belief, it is not enough for someone to just have a mind for them to, being, uh, to be expected to find guidance. This is not enough. There needs to be messengers. And in fact, we refer to periods in history when there was no revelation as Ahlul um, Fatra. Uh, or the people of that time period refer to them as Ahlul Fatra. The people of the pause. The people of the pause in Revelation. The people of the pause in Revelation. 
they will not be liable and accountable on the day of judgment for their misguidance because they never received the message. If they never received as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَمَا كُنَّ مُعَذِّبِينَ حَتَّى نَبْعَثَ رَسُولًا We would never punish until we send a message and a messenger, right? That's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent many messengers. How many messengers? According to the most authentic opinion, we do not know an exact number for messengers or prophets. There is an opinion that says there are 313 messengers and 124,000 prophets. But this is from a weak hadith. 313 messengers like the number of companions that were in Badr. But this is a weak hadith. It's not an authentic hadith. Um, according to the authentic opinion is we don't know an exact number but we know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says min ummatin illa every nation had a warner and the warner would be to establish proof against the people for not believing right because the mind is not enough right and because the mind is not enough it is not enough of a basis to know what's okay and what's not okay because my mind works different your mind works different and we're all going to uh, differently and we're going to end up with different conclusions. Right? Now look at, for example, the example of alcohol. Allah, it went through this process of prohibition. It's mentioned in the book in a few pages. Um, it, it went through this process of prohibition until it was outrightly prohibited. But Allah speaks about alcohol. He says, They ask you about alcohol and gambling. Say, Say to them, there are, there's much harm in alcohol and there's also some benefits. But their harm, the harm outdoes the benefits, right? So if it was left to my mind, I would walk away with one conclusion and you would walk away with another. Someone might say, well, what's the big deal with drinking a little bit of wine as long as you're responsible, right? You could unwind after work, just go home, make sure you don't drive drunk, Right? Don't hurt anyone else. Right? Just be peaceful about it. And who's to say that you can't drink a little bit of wine? What's the big deal? Right? Some people might say that. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put an outright prohibition for it. So this is where we come to a subject of what we call tahseen and taqbih. What is pleasant? What is wicked? I as a Muslim believe Allah is the one who defines what is pleasant. And He's, what is, he's the one who defines what is wicked. That's my belief. I submit to that. It comes as an extension of my aqidah. It's not my mind. If it was my mind, we would all walk away, walk away with different conclusions. Right? What's the big deal? Why can't people just have genders, uh, uh, friends from the opposite gender? Right? Boyfriend, girlfriend. As long as we don't cross certain boundaries. We're going to agree not to do anything um, that would be disastrous or harmful for the rest of society. What's the big deal? Right? If it was left to my mind, some people may reason like this. Yeah, what's the big deal? But when I have tashri' and legislation, and when I have guidance from revelation, it removes these notions and inclinations out of my mind. Once I realize that this revelation is from Allah, and I submit to it, and I know Allah, and this revelation is going to help me fulfill my purpose, I will submit. So the first step is submitting to revelation. And once I submit to revelation, I will follow legislation. You got that? Submitting to revelation, one. Following legislation, two. This is what we find in the guidance of the Quran and the way it was revealed. Look at this slide here. The first verse here, uh, the, these are two hadiths. They speak to this reality. 
Most of what was in the Meccan period was what? Speaking about Iman. Speaking about Day of Judgment, Heaven Hell. Speaking about character, past nations. This is what it's mostly about. When did legislation mostly come about? After that. Very few legislations and laws were during the Meccan period. Right? Most of them were during the Medini period. Why? Because people need to embrace guidance with their hearts first. If someone is hardly a believer in Allah, and you're hitting them on the top of the head for not wearing hijab, or for not praying, or for not fasting, you're going about it all wrong. You need to win over the heart first and make this person realize how magnificent it is to submit to Allah with your heart. And then once they realize that, the, the procedural stuff, the legal stuff will follow. This is what happened with the companions. The trust was preserved in the roots of the hearts of men. Then the Qur'an was revealed. And they learned it from the Qur'an, the trust. Yani they learned the trust. What is the trust? They learned the teachings of faith yani, from the Qur'an and they learned it from the sunnah. And they followed through. Look at the second hadith. It clarifies more. If the first thing to be revealed was do not drink alcohol, people would have said we'll never leave drinking alcohol. And if the first thing was revealed, do not commit intercourse, the zina, fornication, they would have said we'll never abandon fornication. This is a hadith in Sahih al-Bukhari. Right? It teaches us a lot about the process of change. So the need for revelation is my mind cannot fully grasp guidance on its own. It has limitations. The people who want to make their mind the end-all, be-all in our day and age are deeply flawed in their thought process. Many people who are inclined towards science and mathematics and physics, you will find it's the most difficult, it's the most difficult type for them to believe. Why? So self-absorbed. I'm a brilliant person. I need, I need statistics. I need percentages. Right? I had someone sit in front of me one time and do this. Right? He said, can you tell me with 100% certainty that your heaven exists? Right? And he's waiting for me to you know, doubt it because well, I've never seen it. Right? He said, can you tell me with 100% certainty that your heaven exists? Right? Poor guy. He's, a, he's, a, he's brilliant and he loves physics and science. But he can't grasp the most basic, simple realities of life. Right? Can I 100% say with certainty that your brain exists? I can't see it, right? No brain, right? No brain, right? I can't say it for certain, right? So um, <laughs> one of the scholars, actually this is one of the responses from one of the scholars to one of the atheists. Uh, uh, he said this, um, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, he said, how could you, the, the, he tells the scholar, how could you believe in God if you can't see God? And he said, and then what, what did the scholar do? He hit him on top of the head. He said, why'd you do that? He said, what makes you believe in the hit that I just struck your head with right now? Can you see it, right? Can you see it? You feel it, right? But you can't see it. You feel me hitting you on the head, but you can't see it. You can't believe in God, right? All of these realities that you experience and you're going to deny God, you see all, this process, all these processes and this cohesion and consistency. One time, Imam Abu Hanifa, um, he was called to debate, and this is a little this is tangential, but anyway, uh, this is, uh, Imam Abu Hanifa was called to debate an atheist. And um, he was late to the debate. Uh, uh, you know, during the past, uh, the, you know, these were people who are dahriya. That's what they called them. We're going to wither into the ground. We don't believe in a resurrection. There's no day of judgment. That's it. We're just going to wither into the ground. They, they existed, but there were very few. It's a very foreign, aberrant ideology in human history. Uh, anyway, uh, Imam Abu Hanifa was late to the debate. So the man got proud. He was like, look at your scholar. He's too afraid. He's, he's late. So then Imam Hanifa comes running in. 
and um, uh, they asked him, why are you late? He said, I was on the other side of, of, uh, of the river. Uh, the Imam Hanifa was in Iraq, and you know, there's uh, uh, the, the Euphrates River, and there's the Dijla. And so anyway, so he was on the other side. He said that I needed to make it across the river and uh, get here, and I could not find a boat. So I waited for a bit, but then I found that a few logs had fallen into the water and they've come together. And I was able to walk on top of those logs and cross the river and come to you here. And the man looked at him and he was like, this is your scholar? This, a couple of logs came together because he couldn't find a boat and he crossed over and that's, that's how he came to the debate? He doesn't sound very intelligent, right? So... Imam Hanifa looked at him and he said, you're the one who claims that this entire universe came together with such cohesion and consistency without a God and you're going to tell me that I'm the crazy one? Right? So anyway, this is something tangential. How did we get here? Look at, look at building faith within the hearts. If faith is built in the hearts and the hearts understand it, then you'll find that what? The practice will follow it. This is what the, the Quran did with the companions. 13 years, Mecca, mostly about spiritual things. Ten years in Medina, mostly about legal things, right? And in fact, very few legislations during the Meccan period. Among them is the five daily prayers. Five daily prayers, where did that come down? It came down in what? Isra and Mi'raj. Tenth year after Revelation. The night journey. Again, this is a special thing. The rest of the pillars of Islam, all of them, uh, the time period of Medina. Now, the need for revelation is why, look at this verse here, Surah An-Nisa, it says, We sent messengers as bringers of good tidings and warners, so that mankind will have no argument against Allah after the messengers, right? People need proof established against them. And until it is, they're not going to be held accountable. There's different types of guidance, right? We, uh, you know, every human being, every creation of Allah has a type of guidance, right? Every creation of Allah has a type of guidance. What are these types of guidance? We have a general type of guidance. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Our Lord, has he, He's the one who's given each thing its form. He created it, and then He guided it. What is this general type of guidance? Meaning He guided it how to function, how to move about, Right? How to walk and talk and function and communicate. That's a general guidance. Everyone has this. Then, the guidance of clarification. That is for human beings who, or for accountable creations of Allah, human and jinn, that received revelation, that received guidance. Look at this verse. Surah uh, Fussilat. It says what? And as for Thamud, we guided them. What does guided them mean? We gave them the clarifications through revelation. This is a form of guidance, right? This is the second type of guidance. The hidayah of clarification, right? We guided them, but they preferred blindness over guidance. So this is the second usage for the term hidayah, guidance. The guidance of clarification. The third one is what? Hidayat at-tawfiq. There's one missing here. Hidayat at-tawfiq. This is the hidayah of, or the guidance to following truth. So there's one guidance that's, what? Knowing right from wrong, right? As Allah says, وَهَدَيْنَاهُ النَّجْدَيْنِ We've guided him to the two paths. What are they? The path of goodness, the path of wickedness. 
This is the second type of guidance, guidance of clarification. Guidance of tawfiq is the guidance of following the truth. You know, so that's why we say, oh Allah, allow us to see truth as truth is and bless us to follow it. And allow us to see falsehood as falsehood is and bless us to avoid it. Because there are people who see falsehood but can't avoid it. There are those people who see guidance but can't follow it. Right? So this is the third type of guidance. The last type of guidance, the fourth one is the hidayah of the people of Jannah. This is a beautiful thing here. Right? Look at what it says in the Quran. Indeed, those who have believed and done righteous deeds, their Lord will guide them because of their faith. Yahdihim Rabbuhum Bi'imanihim. What does that mean? If they already have iman, what guidance do they need? This is talking about a special guidance. This is a guidance when you enter Jannah. You're going to be so aware of where you should go in Jannah more than you were aware of your home in dunya. Right? When you go home right now, you're going to know, oh, of course, I know all the routes. I know to go route, route this and route that and street this and street that. And I turn here and I turn there and I'm home. In Jannah, you're going to be better aware of where your house is. Right? Look at the Prophet Sallallahu He says, every one of them will know his dwelling in paradise better than he knew his dwelling in this world. That's a special type of guidance. May Allah give us that guidance. May Allah make us of the ones who got the third type of guidance, followed the messengers, and get the fourth type of guidance when we enter Jannah. Allahumma ameen. Alright, that's the need for... Um, look, why do, why do human beings need revelation? Why do they need revelation? Speaking to this reality a little bit more. I have emotions, I have desires. I have emotions, anger, rage, um, uh, sadness, happiness. All of these different types of emotions. I have desires as a human being, certain wants. I need something to regulate all of this and guide it. Because the way the shaitan functions is, is by exploiting those aspects of my humanity. He breaks down these aspects of my humanity and makes, me, makes what's beautiful utterly ugly. Right? Sadness is a beautiful human characteristic. It becomes utterly ugly when it becomes depression and despair. Anger is a beautiful human characteristic because it leads to standing up for what's right. And it becomes utterly ugly when it manifests in acts of aggression and oppression. Right? So, why do I need revelation? I need the regulation of my emotions and my desires. And that happens through the example of a prophet. That's why Allah never sends a without a messenger. And whenever Allah sends a manual, He sends a model. Whenever Allah sends a manual, He sends a model. Right? This is, and that's why it shows us the role of the messenger is very hands-on. Take this for example, the time of the Prophet ﷺ, there was this woman, she was crying over the grave of her son who had passed away. And the Prophet ﷺ passed from behind her and he said to her, Be conscious of Allah and be patient. So she reacted, she didn't know who was talking to her. She said, You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what I'm going through. So then he left. And when she found out it was the Prophet she went to apologize. And the Prophet told her, True patience is at the first strike of grief. We learn that the Prophet role here is very hands-on. Through his example, through his character, he shows how to live guidance and follow it. Right? And that's why he was a human being. He was a human being to show us how to overcome adversity, how to deal with trials. He lost all of his children during his lifetime, وسلم, except one, Fatima. So again, this is all speaking to that reality of need for revelation. Need for legislation. Well, these are five critical points here. I need to understand these. Need to understand these points. All right. Um, uh, 
the, the need for legislation manifests in a few things. One of them is human beings each have unique minds, right? And we already spoke to this. I think differently, you think differently. Every one of us has their own conclusions that their mind gives them. And with these unique minds, what's going to unite us? A legislation, a, a system of governance that needs to be in place. Governance needs to be there because some people will be good enough to do what's right, right? But not everyone will do that, right? Some people will be good enough, all right? I, I, I don't need someone to, I don't need there to be a punishment for stealing for me not to steal. I'm not going to steal. That's morally wrong to me. But many other people, without governance, without punishment, without consequence, taqwa will not be enough to stop them from stealing. They will steal. There needs to be accountability. Governance is critical for keeping society in, uh, you know, on, 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 on solid foundations. Right? That's why they say in the history of Islam, Justice is the foundation for all, for all forms of rule. Without justice, civilizations will decline. And history proves this. Once, the, once a nation loses its moral compass, and you have different, um, different groups in society, people who are powerful, people who are weak, and the powerful are exploiting the weak, there will be a breaking point where people will not accept it. They will rebel and they'll do crazy things in response to their oppression. Right? And this, you know, there's, there's a lot to think about in this regard, brothers and sisters. You know, we could pull this discussion, we, we could make a lecture just about this point here. Why is there a need for justice? There's a need for justice because um, it is what keeps people in check, the, the, the powerful and the weak. It gives pr purpose. With, without law, you know, if, if Islam was these nice set of, these niceties that I practice in my own personal private life, and, you know, in my home or in my place of worship, and it doesn't really affect society, then guess what? It's going to be relevant. Islam is so relevant because it addresses every aspect of my being. Right? No, it's, I am not of that. You know, this is actually one of the products of the colonized mindset. Right? Many Muslims they ended up having this understanding. Right? That all right, you know, the, the you know your religion is for yourself, your personal private relationship. Right? So, al-din lillah wal watan jamia as they used to say. What? Deen, that's between you and God. Your religion is between you and God. Right? But society, this is something that is divorced from, divorced from that connection to God. Don't bring your religion into society because everyone has the right to believe whatever they want. The premise, whole premise of secularism, right? Uh, divorcing between religion and state, right? And there's so much to say about that, but we, you know, this is just telling you the need for legislation in Islam is because it helps fulfill purpose. Alhamdulillah that our deen is not one of those deens that what? Right? I'm going to do, you know, all I want all week long, and then I'm going to come one day and atone for that by attending something or repenting or mish'arifah, doing something so superficial and fake, right, that is so divorced from how I chose to be as a person, right? Alhamdulillah that our religion is not um, superficial like that. No, you want to be a true person of taqwa? It is in here and it is out there too. It is in your workplace. It is in the way you deal with your desires, the way you deal with your family, 
The way you deal with every aspect of your being, even in your private time, when no one else, no humans with you, even the way you govern yourself, right? That's that's true faith. So these are the need. This these these five spell out the need for legislation, preservation of fitra. That's the one I didn't mention. Preservation of fitra. This is you know when I talk about fitra, I'm talking about natural human design, the way that Allah, the the blueprint, the way Allah created us. Fitra Allahi lati fitra nas alaiha, right? Um, so the way Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created us is preserved through legislation. That's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said looking at certain things is haram. Right? Engaging in certain behaviors is, is, is detrimental. Cer- doing certain actions is obligatory. Right? This whole system of law that we have is to preserve fitra as it's supposed to be within us, right? So these are some points. And then in the, uh, you know, this section about legislation during the time of the Prophet Sallallahu is something that we're going to need to talk about more. But again, that s- speaks to, there was one point that we didn't spell out yet. Um, and that is the difference between man-made law and Sharia law, right? So one of these differences is that Sharia law is not something that can easily be dismissed as irrelevant from society. Why? It's this thing that, you know, you find it historically speaking, that how has Sharia law maintained this dynamic presence beyond the confines of culture and time? How? Why? Because they're universal legislations from Allah. Right? And Allah is best aware of His creation. When you look at man-made law, the laws and legislations that people make, they quickly become irrelevant. If you were to look at our own personal laws, the state laws in our country, from a hundred years ago, you'd feel like it was a different world. You'd feel like it's a, you know, what universe was this even set in? Some of these laws, just going back a few decades, just a few decades, Treat certain demographics of humanity as subhuman. They don't even allow them to enter certain spaces. Racism, the whole the Jim Crow laws and all that. The source of this, this was only a few decades ago in the most enlightened quote-unquote country in the world. Right? Go back a few decades, you'll find atrocious things stated by uh, lawmakers. Quickly becoming irrelevant. So one of the features of Islamic law is it maintains relevance throughout time because it's from Allah. And one of the features of man-made law is it quickly becomes irrelevant because it's from the short-sightedness of human beings, right? So that's, um, uh, that, that, that's one. Now another thing is, Sharia law is about, like we said, procuring benefits and repelling harms in a worldly and otherworldly sense, right? I'll say this one more time. The second thing is, Sharia is about Jalb al Masalih, Dar al Mafasid, procuring benefits, repelling harms, in a worldly and otherworldly sense. What does that mean? Meaning that our understanding of justice is not limited to this world. It's not. There's a day of judgment where ultimate justice will be rendered. If I'm someone who operates with the understanding that 
this life is the end-all, be-all for justice, then guess what? I'm going to be so disheartened, so angry, so frustrated by many realities that unfold because many times justice is not rendered in this world. It's not. It's not given as it should be given. People get away with things, right? So the fact that Sharia has this, this, this view of dunya and akhirah makes it so much more dynamic than man-made laws. Man-made laws end up about being what? Um, uh, maintaining law and order, right? It becomes about um, governing the individual needs of people, right? That's, so this brings me to the third difference. The third difference between Sharia and man-made law is that it has this seasoned view of the interests of the individual and of society and the influence of the individual in society, right? It's not about society and society alone. We're not socialists as Muslims. We're not socialists, uh, meaning that we lose sight of the individual and it's just about the greater benefits of society. And we have this very utilitarian as- attitude towards uh, personal benefits for people. No, not that. And we're not, an in, we're not, Islam doesn't promote a society that's on the basis of individualism either, like he is now. Right? Our society is expand the rights of the individual to the fullest to the extent that it just doesn't infringe on the rights of other individuals. Right? But society, but, and this is the stated um, understanding and philosophy towards law. Law, or man-made law as we understand it and it's applied, cannot spell out values. Right? No, this is something that is for people to decide. You decide what your values are. Um, I, it would be judgmental for me to say what's right and what's wrong, what's moral, what's immoral. Uh, law is this blind um, application of certain policies, certain regulations, certain certain um, uh, you know c- certain certain amendments that that we've agreed upon to adhere to as a society. It's not about morality. It's not about justice per se. Right, but it's it's not about justice in the sense that we, uh, you know, from the standpoint of what's morally correct. Because what man-made laws are based on is what you can't say what's morally correct. That you can't decide that. Right? People decide that for themselves. But we as Muslims, we've submitted to Allah's law, and Allah decides what's moral and what's immoral. So this is the third difference that. Islam does not focus just on one side of the equation, the individual or the society. It focuses on both. We're going to, I know it's time for Salah, and um, it's uh, time for Iqama, so we're going to stop soon. I just need two more minutes, and we're going to stop in the left for Salah, inshallah. So what you see here in the beginning of this slide is it tells us about what, well, it starts off with what is a Nabi, what is a Rasul. And we, you know, the, um, a Rasul is a messenger. That's someone who has been given a message to carry to people. A prophet is someone, or a nabi is someone who's given news from Allah. And that's something lesser than a rasul. A rasul is something more involved. He needed to convey a message to a people, right? And the next thing this sli- these slides go over, what is wahi? What is revelation? How does it function? Well, there are linguistic meanings for wahi, right? So wahi um, uh, could mean refer to the natural order of things. It could refer to natural instinct, Human intuition. These are all examples that you could read on your own. And we inspired the mother of Musa. Suckle him. When you fear for him, cast him into the river. Right? Is this actual wahi? Revelation as we know it? No. This is inspiration. Human intuition. This is not 
revelation like we know to prophets. Wahi uh, is also attributed to the devils. And indeed, the devils inspire their allies to dispute with you. Right? And, and if you were to obey them, then indeed you'd be of their associates. And then we have the inspiration to prophets. That's, a meaning, well, that's what wahi means in our usage of it. As Allah says, and it is not for any human being that Allah should speak to him except by revelation or from behind a partition or that he sends a messenger to reveal by his permission what he wills. How was wahi given to people, to prophets and messengers? Well, this happened by way of dreams. It also happened by intermediary, Jibreel, and um, it also happened directly. These are the three manners and procedures of Wahi. And we're going to stop with this slide here. The, and then we're going to pray Asr inshallah. So it says here, by way of dreams, the beginning of mes- prophethood was what? Ru'ya sadiqa. That's what it was for the Prophet The commencement of the divine inspiration upon the Prophet was in the form of good dreams. Right? He says, The Prophet said, the only thing that remains from prophethood is what? Glad tidings, right? What is that? The good dream that a believer could even see. So it's a form of wahi and revelation. Direct speech. This happened in what? The night journey. It also happened with Musa salam, who is Kalimullah, the one whom Allah spoke to directly. So direct speech could also be a form of revelation. Like in the night journey for the Prophet ﷺ when Allah communicated to him directly. And that's when it only occurred for the Prophet ﷺ in that way. And then the third way with intermediary, that's through Jibreel ﷺ. Jibreel came with this revelation to the Prophet ﷺ. Sometimes he would come in human form. Sometimes he would come in his angelic form. And that was only in two or three situations. And sometimes he would come to him in a very, um, very subtle way, like uh, the ringing of a bell. And that's, that was, this was the most difficult for the Prophet ﷺ to endure. Um, the Prophet would sweat, he'd become heavy, it'd be difficult for him. And Jibreel ﷺ would subtly communicate to him the guidance that Allah told him to communicate. Tamam? So this is a good stopping point. We're going to start, we're going to continue our session with speaking more about the Qur'an as the primary source of guidance that the Prophet ﷺ used for legislation and communicating law to the companions during his lifetime. So inshallah, we're going to continue after Asr prayers. Uh, we're going to have a lunch, inshallah. Uh, we're going to have a short lunch, uh, and then we're going to continue with the third session after the short lunch, inshallah. Jazakumullah khair. Uh, now we can have adhan and iqama, and we'll pray asr immediately. Jazakumullah khair. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.